I'm Afshin Ratatsi and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from Dubai in the UAE. The boss of Biden diplomat and Ukraine coup coordinator Victoria Newland, Tony Blinken, telephoned Sudanese leader General Burhan just four days before violence broke out in what was Africa's largest country. Hundreds of thousands have now been displaced from the global resource superpower. Peace, though, is being discussed in Saudi Arabia, seen by some as evidence that since Putin's move to save the people of Donbass, in Europe and the strengthening of BRICS, a global transformation in power is unstoppable. But does the U.S. military-industrial complex still have a few tricks up its sleeve? Joining me from New York is a journalist who fought for power in elections in the U.S. Capitol for the PSL or U.S. Party for Socialism and Liberation. Eugene Perrier is the host of Freedom Side on Breakthrough News and author of Shackled and Chained, Mass Incarceration in Capitalist America. Eugene, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show. So uh, apparently a Russian naval base, plans for that were in train. Biden suddenly pours in $288 million of uh, U.S. public money into uh, Sudan and then chaos, hundreds of thousands of displaced. What are the roots of the conflict? I know that Newland gave congressional evidence and it seemed some congressmen were supporting uh, Burhan against uh, Hermeti between the two generals as the way the conflict is described on corporate media. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see, you know, as this unfolds, the full context of that. But I think that when we look at the roots, we look at Newland's call, we look at the Biden administration, they've really had the same position since 2019 and the eruption of the mass protest that ended in the uh, removal of former President Omar al-Bashir, which is to try to manage the political situation in Sudan to have the best possible outcome for what the United States and the sort of related countries that are working with them uh, would like to see for the Region. I don't think they have full control. I think they've been trying to maneuver between the different forces and the RSF and the SAF and move them around. But at the end of the day, what the U.S. seems to be looking for is to keep Sudan firmly in its column, you know, first and foremost in the region and vis-a-vis -vis what's happening in Africa, but also in the Middle East and in West Asia, where Sudan has traditionally played a very significant role. And they want to make sure that there is a, a, a force of power that is behind the throne that ultimately will, I think, as you speak to, not have a big opening to, to Russia, which is, of course, gaining ground all across the African continent, but that also will be very open to various different things. The Abraham Accords, which Sudan has signed, deals with the IMF and other pieces like that, that for them would certainly be better, but also that have a fig leaf of democracy, quote unquote, alongside of it. And they're trying to manage what's happening here on both the civilian side and the military side. And it seems to have now boiled over. But I think those are basically the roots is a mass movement that was really moving the history of Sudan forward in a big way. And that has been to some degree short-circuited primarily by the role of the United States to try to manage the transition and take it out of Sudanese hands. Yeah, one normally thinks of those U.S. aid-backed NGOs as pawns of uh, U.S. Uh, hegemony, but even they in Sudan seems to be going against the neoliberal model in Sudan. Was that part of uh, the problem here? That is part of the problem. And I think when you look at the resistance committee... Or solution, I should say. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a very good point to say. And when you look at the, the resistance committees that were the backbone of those protests, they were very heterogeneous. I mean, you had sort of the NGO, U.S. aid types. You also had communists. You also had the Ba'ath Party. You had a lot of different people, the traditional major political parties, the National Oma Party and others. I mean, it really was sort of an all-Sudanese sort of movement, which is why I think it was successful more so than other challenges that uh, President Bashir had faced, which were, you know, more sectoral and less sort of all-encompassing. 
encompassing here. And I think that is actually part of the challenge of what is facing now is many people were agreed on what they knew they did not want. But then in the wake of that, you've got these challenges. But if you're a part of the movement on the streets, I think it's very difficult to be considered legitimate in Sudan if you are continuing to move against what a lot of people, especially young people, have seen to be potentially problematic. I mean, the selling of the country to the Washington consensus type of policies, uh, the fact that there's not a, a significant oversight and regulation around mining, around agriculture, the fact that there needs to be significant redistribution of wealth both between classes and between regions. So I think even those who want to push a more pro-US agenda are still in a position where in order to maintain their own credibility with the Sudanese street, they have to also sort of hold up uh, a, a more the you know counter-hegemonic policy, if you will. But this is why we've seen the US play both sides of the fence. On the one hand, they're trying to manage some civilian forces. On the other hand, they're trying to have influence with the military, which I think speaks to the fact that the West knows they're not fully in control and that Sudanese people themselves have a lot of very strong beliefs that they're not fully able to override. So they're trying to massage both sides of it to get what many people in Sudan call the soft landing, which means a type of government that will be very malleable and very manipulatable by the US, by the EU, and by other powers. But I think it's difficult because Sudanese people themselves have a very clear idea of what they'd like to see and their own political processes at the grassroots that are making it difficult to just impose an agenda from the top. I mean, the richest per capita country, South Africa, doesn't seem to care much for the ICC, what with its warrant on uh, Putin, obviously. The ICC, of course, uh, uh, sparked the uh, detention of Omar al-Bashir in Sudan, our editor of Going Underground, I should say. Uh, there's a piece on the internet. She was in Darfur exposing the lies that were written about Darfur. What was the relationship between... Uh, uh, Bashir's foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis Palestine as to why he was destroyed by uh, NATO nations. I think that his policies towards Palestine were maybe one of the key uh, factors in terms of why the United States immediately sort of uh, uh, jumped on the, the the military forces who were willing to get rid of Bashir and were looking for international backing because Sudan, really going back to 1967, so well before Bashir, the 1967 Arab League conference, the famous three no's, no negotiation with Israel. I mean, Sudan has a long history of putting all, you know, very significant uh, forces, money, you know, all of that behind the Palestinian cause. And this, of course, is what has led the United States to bomb Sudan in 1998. Uh, Israel was frequently bombing Sudan in terms of, you know, at least what they said were uh, weapon shipments that were coming through um, and moving into Palestine. And so certainly Sudan has always been very much a country that has not gone along with the consensus uh, of the United States, at least, in terms of how they would like to see the Israeli-Palestinian conflict addressed and they've tended to favor all of the factions in Palestine, but to really say we're supporting Palestinians, you know, we're supporting their self-determination and we'll support it with money, we'll support it with more than that. And so I think, I, I don't know the exact chain of events, but it seems when we look at what happened in 2019, that part of the conversations that took place between the United States and the elements of the military that removed Bashir was to essentially say, we will become a part of the Abraham Accords process if you back us in our attempt to establish a condominium government with the civilian forces. So, you know, I, I don't know if it's the number 
one issue in terms of the West, but I think it certainly is one of the issues that was always at the center of the contradictions between the United States and Sudan, and that in the Darfur conflict was weaponized in a major way to try to dismember Sudan. And I think that certainly it still continues to play a role today. And it's also something that has become one of the more contentious issues with all of the various political forces in Sudan, most of whom do not support the Abraham Accords process, although many of them have very different views on two-state solution, one-state solution, and all of that. So it's becoming a, a nettle, if you will, uh, in the, the attempts to really find common ground between the different sides. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Darfur, of course. So what, what's happened to George Clooney, Don Cheadle, Brad Pitt? There was a whole echelon of people that helped and aided the breakup of Sudan from South Sudan, where, of course, there are a lot of extra minerals uh, in uh, part, of, part of what was Sudan. How is it being covered there in uh, the United States? Because uh, you couldn't turn for suddenly Africa being on the front pages of American newspapers when it came to the desire to destroy Bashir and break up Sudan. Now they're confused merely by what is going on in Sudan? Well, you know, all of the celebrities have disappeared, uh, and the mainstream media has just seemed to rediscovered Darfur, but talking about it in very different terms. And I think it just shows that with almost every African issue, that the way it enters into the U.S. sort of mainstream media is only in the context of some sort of State Department engineered campaign to unseat some leader. I mean, we saw something similar in Ethiopia recently. Uh, we saw it in Cote d'Ivoire with the removal of President Gbagbo. Uh, we've seen it over and over again in the history of this. And I think Darfur was an issue where there was a lot of, you know, very spurious information put forward that was designed to decontextualize the issue in every way, to take out the environmental factors, to take out the, the really underlying factors of the contradictions between herders and pastoralists over land and water in a moment where the Sahel, because of climate change, is seeing land and water become more and more scarce. And it was an attempt to turn it into an ethno-nationalist conflict, Africans versus Arabs, which is you know, essentially a totally false presentation, but it was all very important at that time because that was being pushed. So I think the mainstream media's entire attachment to Africa seems to be 100% based on what the State Department feels, uh, you know, needs to be put out there. And when those sorts of campaigns, propaganda campaigns aren't being run, you don't really hear anything about it. Just like now, all the American newspapers are talking about Russia in the Sahel, but they were never talking about Mali for the years and the years and the years that France was committing war crimes there in the country and being accused of that that there were all these terrorist attacks that were going on that were really harming people in Mali and Burkina and Niger and all these other countries. So I think it's very interesting to note that Darfur, like so many of these other issues, the only way you really see them in the mainstream media is when they seem to be directly connected to some sort of propaganda campaign designed to gin up regime change. Well, uh, just before we go to West Africa, maybe you mentioned Ethiopia. Uh, if there's any reason for celebration that out of the catastrophe of what's happening in Sudan, maybe groups can overturn the Washington consensus. The NATO nations clearly failed to weaponize the TPLF and break up the Eritrea-Ethiopia uh, peace deal. However, Ethiopia suddenly talking about this IMF deal, uh, what sort of pressure is being exerted on the uh, leader of Ethiopia? Uh, wh why would uh, President Zuda be contemplating IMF money knowing what she must know happens to an African country that gets indebted to the IMF in Washington. 
I think extreme pressure is being applied right now. And I think that Ethiopia is in a situation where, according to their own analysis, they need about $20 billion in uh, money in terms of recovering from the war, the damage that was done. I mean, they've got billions of dollars in debt that already exist. And so ultimately, they're in one of these sort of uh, you know, Faustian situations here. I mean, the sort of you got to spend money to, to make money, where to develop their country, to recover, they need access to funds. But because it's a country where 70% of people live in poverty, there are very limited options in terms of how you raise those funds. And I think that what is happening is there is a lot of old style thinking in the Ethiopian government that thinks the only way to address this is to go to the IMF and to the World Bank. And I think that when you look at AGOA, which is a free trade agreement, which Ethiopia has been removed from, from but access to U.S markets. That's also being used. The, ret the return of Ethiopia is being dangled. Um, the issue of the IMF World Bank is being dangled. And so there's this attempt to basically say, we'll help you with your debt issues. We'll help you with the GOA. We'll do all these different things if you're willing to toe the same line as the TPLF and become a proxy in the region. So I think the real question in Ethiopia now is whether the government of Abiy Ahmed and those around him are going to capitulate to this or whether or not they're going to recognize that this is a trap. And that's similar to Eritrea, a country that, of course, they've made peace with that, you know, ultimately, if you don't rely primarily on your own means in order to develop, you end up in a situation where you're bound by the shackles of the Washington consensus, the IMF and the World Bank. But it is a tricky situation. It's a huge country, 120 million people, huge needs that they have right now. And even prior to this war, huge needs in terms of IDPs, refugees, and just general development, again, 70% of the people living in poverty. So it's a tough situation for them to basically have to decide between whether or not they, they essentially live in, in a very tough set of circumstances and try to build themselves up from the ground up or whether they try to enter into this IMF and World Bank. So I think it's a, it's a dangerous situation. I've been saying quite a bit that I think they should not do this and that the IMF is in fact a trap. But I do think that right now the well-being of the Ethiopian people is being put into a vice here by the United States to try to force the governing officials there to have a more client state reality in the region. So we'll see if it happens. Uh, I don't know if it's that likely, but it's an interesting development. Eugene Breyer, I'll stop you there. More from the Breakthrough News host and PSL politician after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still with the host of Freedom Side on Breakthrough News, Eugene Breyer. What about BRICS? What about Russian and Chinese intelligence on what happened in Sudan? Are they uh, making some mistakes in Beijing and Moscow when it comes to uh, how the Blinken State Department is operating at the moment? Or do these countries realize the world has changed since, uh, since Ukraine? I think they do realize the world has changed. And I think when you look just below the surface, and even in the countries we're talking about, I think both Russia and China are acting in a way that the peoples of Ethiopia, of Sudan, of Eritrea prefer to see, which is to say, we're not taking sides. We're not, you know, for this side. We're not for that side. We just want to try to find a way to have, you know, win-win partnerships. You look at China right now, I mean, they are actually already forgiving the Ethiopian debt, despite the fact that the West and the IMF and others are dragging their feet. China's restructuring the debt. They're engaging in new deals. They're bringing new investment into the country. Russia is now also partnering with Ethiopia around how to do more training uh, in the information technology sphere, how to bring more students from Ethiopia there uh, into the country. Both of the countries are working very closely now with Eritrea around issues of logistics, around issues of of trade, around issues of power. And in Sudan, 
a little bit more complicated, but I think still a similar sort of reality when you look at it is that Russia and China really had good relations with both sides that are fighting each other now. And we're also talking to many other political forces and essentially saying, you know, we are partners that you can speak to, whoever your government may be. We have our own interests. We're looking for our own economic interests, of course. But at the end of the day, you know, we're going to work with what you give us. And I think that's what people on the African continent really want to see. They want to move away from this sort of US, EU style of we tell you what to do and you do it or we destroy you. And I think what we're seeing is the BRICS nations, especially Russia and China, um, are playing a significant role in sort of shifting that balance uh, as it concerns the relations uh, of big powers with the African continent. And I think we're seeing the US and the EU get left behind a little bit and have honestly started to lose quite a bit of ground in terms of at least the, 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 the battle of ideas, if you will, in terms of who the best partner is for African countries in the 21st century. Well, as you said, France kicked out of uh, Mali. But isn't that Bandung level of non-aligned movementism gone? I mean, Che Guevara knew where China and Russia were when it came to geopolitics. Isn't it now a case of you can't be non-aligned in the sense that you're not aligned with countries with nuclear weapons uh, in the face of a United States that in the, in the past few decades has obviously killed, wounded, or displaced uh, tens of millions of men, women, and children? Yes, I think, you know, non-alignment now is, is a myth. I mean, it'd be nice. I mean, it would be great. It would be fair. But I think the reality is, is despite what all the rhetoric is, the U.S. especially has decided that you must choose sides. I mean, even if you look at Anthony Blinken's trip last year to Africa, and he went to South Africa and he said, well, we don't tell anybody what side they can choose. And just a couple of weeks before, Linda Thomas-Greenfeld, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, had been in Uganda doing just that, saying you can only, in fact, trade with Russia around these goods and anything else should be sanctioned. You saw Victoria Nuland go to Burkina Faso and essentially lay down the law and say, you cannot work with Russia on any of your security concerns. We can see that Mali, of course, was removed, just like Ethiopia, from AGOA for refusing to keep the French in the country. So when it comes down to the actual policies, and certainly what you hear from African diplomats, from Afri African politicians, is that there is significant pressure that is put on them by the United States on a regular basis to break all ties with Russia. So despite the fact that they see, they say they claim, well, you know, we're not taking sides. We're not asking our African friends to take sides, rather. Um, they are every day, constantly, and using every possible technique they can find to put pressure on them. And so I think ultimately, despite the fact it would certainly be the, the just and fair thing to let any country work with whoever they want to work with, the United States is working in overdrive to keep the African continent from exploring new possibilities with Russia, with China, with India, with Turkey, with Brazil, with Venezuela, with all sorts of countries all around the world that they're actively pursuing right now. They want to put a stop to that, and they want to put a stop to it as quickly as they possibly can. But clearly, the Biden administration has a compliant elite class in Africa, amongst the elites of uh, African countries who don't uh, remember the past or don't choose to remember the past, what tricks do you think uh, the United States has up its sleeve as what seems to be happening, as you mentioned in Burkina Faso, the, I don't know, the spirit of Sankara uh, back uh, in West Africa? What is the United States going to do? Is it going to go back to resorting to assassination, uh, to uh, more recently, of course, uh, sponsoring of... Uh, uh, Islamic, politically Islamic uh, groupings to destabilize governments. What, what do you expect Biden to do? 
Well, I'm definitely expecting them to double down on the sort of security packed type realities that they have set up. I mean, you see the French are removed from Mali. And the next thing you know, the U.S. is talking to other West African countries like Ghana and others about setting up a new military, uh, you know, alliance or whatever to continue to act in West Africa, allegedly against terrorism. But really what we see is they build up these massive militaries of these countries where the leaders are totally happy to let the people live completely in poverty while they take all the money and all the holidays in Europe and the United States. And then they use that military to repress their own people when they rise up and they say something. And I think that what we've seen is for, as you say, a class of elites there, that's a very useful function to have the West essentially be your bodyguard. And we're seeing in Zambia now the expansion of U.S. military forces uh, in uh, that country. We're seeing in, you know, the the non-country, the so-called Somaliland uh, being drawn further and further in to U.S. war games and actually presenting itself to the United Kingdom and the United States with their lobbyists as, oh, well, help us get independence and we'll become, you know, a client state. Like, this is actually what they're saying of the U.S. in the region. They're saying we're reliable. Djibouti's not reliable because they work with China. I think we're seeing a, a number of different countries, Burkina Faso being another one, which is obviously moving in a more self-determining direction, but you see the U.S. constantly now sort of nipping around the edges of Burkina Faso to try to use military aid uh, as a way to maybe bring them back into to the Western camp. So I think the thing we can expect is the increased militarization of the African continent. And when you look at, you know, the EU as well, which, is of course, working directly with the United States, let's remember that Ursula von der Leyen, when she was the defense minister of Germany, she was a huge advocate of building up the German military specifically to have greater interventions in the African continent. We're seeing Italy is uh, actually now acting as the so-called coordinator of the anti-terrorist fight in Mozambique and providing billions of dollars along with France to fund some of the elements that are going on there. So I think in Washington and Brussels, their response to Africans rising up and saying, we want to no longer live in poverty and neocolonialism for another century by doubling down on the militarization of the content, use a uh, continent to use their military forces to back these these totally corrupt elites that know for a fact that the only way for them to stay in power, since they won't deliver any development, is is through the barrel of a gun. Well, then, is there one problem when it comes uh, to these African countries that it, the problem is actually with China and Russia and uh, perhaps the Arab uh, GCC countries? They never have conditionality. China and GCC, certainly, to a lesser extent, Russia. China doesn't say, well, if you're going to become a proxy of the United States, you're not going to get Chinese investment. China just carries on the investment, as does uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE and uh, GCC countries. Do you think some of these uh, Global South countries uh, and China need to start making conditionality an element in the future investment plans? I think if they start to make conditionality in the future investment plans, they may lose some support on the African continent. Because I think even Africans who I have the opportunity to talk to who are, you know, oppositional to their government, they never say to me, you know, what I really wish is that China or Russia or the U.S. or whoever would come in here and change the government for me. Their attitude is we want partners who whoever the government of our country is, they're willing to work with us around what our priorities may be. And I think that's going to be the Africa of the 21st century is who is willing to actually work with Africans you know, across the table as partners in a real way, which means you cannot actually dictate all of these other terms and all of these other realities. And quite frankly, I would say for the countries without 
about conditionalities, it's working out pretty well for them right now because they're seeing across the political spectrum. I mean, you look at a lot of countries in Africa, in the Sahel, in Southern Africa, you know, the left-wing parties, the right-wing parties, the centrist parties, all of them, they have a certain level of appreciation for China, especially because of the role they're playing, but also for Russia, also for Turkey, also for other countries, Malaysia, others that are starting to do more on the African continent because they will tell you, we feel like they're actually treating our country as if we are equals, not just subjects and satrapies. And I think that that is the big shift we're going to see in Africa in the next 10 or 15 years, is anyone who is trying to say, in order to get investment money or whatever from us, you have to do X, Y, and Z, they're going to continue to lose ground. And those who are willing to say, hey, here are our interests. This is what we want from your country. How do you feel about that? Let's negotiate and come to a deal. Uh, whoever's on the other side of the table will work that out, and there won't be any withdrawing or bringing things in based on governmental changes. Those are the countries that are going to start to win out, and that we've already seen are gaining a significant amount of popularity all across the African continent. Despite what you read in the Western media, China, very popular in the African continent. Russia, extremely popular uh, in the African continent now. Uh, all of these countries are gaining in terms of their popularity, and honestly, they have very close ties to them in ways that are also cultural. I mean, you know, you look at the, the Islam, which is huge in, 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 in uh, uh, West Africa, of course. I mean, that creates a special cultural tie to parts of West Asia and different pieces like that that I think African countries want to start to explore more as they're talking about how to recover their culture after all of these years of total destruction. They're looking for countries that also respect them at that level, not just an economic level, but that aren't looking to impose, uh, you know, just a full Westernization of how they live as well. Just uh, turning to the media, which presumably hasn't been covering any of these issues in that context at all, what did you make of the fact that uh, Omali Yeshitea of the African Socialist Movement uh, has been uh, charged, uh, detained, for uh, allegedly working with Russian intelligence to interfere with the U.S. elections, and only uh, Tucker Carlson, once of Fox News, mentioned it at the Heritage Foundation, <laughs> the right-wing Heritage Foundation. Uh, what exactly is going on amongst the, some would say, utterly McCarthyite uh, states of uh, media in your country? I would say it just shows that the mainstream media in the United States is, is, as you say, in lockstep with this McCarthyite push coming from the government, just like they were during McCarthyism in the 1950s. And, you know, the, the New York Times is, the CNNs of the world, I mean, they've become almost more zealous than the U.S. government in allegedly trying to root out this so-called, you know, Russian influence in the country. And, you know, I would say, well, first and foremost, like, let's say the government proved these things in court that they're saying about Omali Eshetela, and let's see if they actually have the evidence. But on on top of that, it reminds me of things like the Internet Research Association and these other things where there are these just, you know, completely absurd charges where it's not even really about does anyone get convicted. It's about just throwing mud and creating the perception that there's some malign influence and in forces. But the things they're claiming that the, the African Socialist Party was doing because of Russian influence, it's totally absurd. It, 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 just assuming any of that is true, just taking it at face value. I mean, they've been talking about reparations. They've been talking about all the things that allegedly they own only did because of Russian influence for 40 years. So the idea that somehow some guy writing a $500 check is, you know, creating this fifth column for Russia and America is totally absurd. I am expecting these charges, you know, from my point of view, uh, or I would say that I view them as a total sham, total kangaroo court. But the very fact that the media is not calling this out for exactly what it is shows that from Julian Assange to Omalia Shatela to everything that's happening vis-a-vis -vis Russiagate, that there is, is a lockstep coordination between the intelligence community and the mainstream media in the United States. Eugene Breyer, thank you. You.
And that's it for the show. Remember, we're bringing you new episodes every Saturday and Monday, but until then, you can keep in touch via all our social media if it's not censored in your country. And head to our channel, Going Underground TV, on rumble.com to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you soon.